You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Swedish Institute of International Affairs and this first seminar of the new Global China series. My name is Björn Jeden and I'm heading the Asia program here at the Institute. The Global China series is funded by Riksbankens Jubileumsfond, the Swedish Foundation for Humanities and Social Sciences. The series runs throughout this year to spread information and research about China's impact across the world. Apart from open seminar like this one, the series also includes video interviews with experts and the Swedish language podcast Sidenvägspodden with Ola Wong, all available on our website. We organized this series together with the Stockholm Observatory for Global China, an independent Swedish research network dedicated to questions arising in relation to China's growing global footprint. For those of you who plan to visit a Politicians Week in Almedalen this summer, I can recommend a seminar that we organized on July 1st together with Uppsala University on the topic of a Swedish strategy on China. However, today's discussion is on the Belt and Road Initiative, that is, China's global vision for trade, infrastructure, and political cooperation, and the relation of this initiative to international order. China's importance as a global provider of investment, loans, and development aid has increased significantly over the past decades. This has sparked both hopes of new economic opportunity around the world, as well as concerns over effects on the established international order. Last month, at the Belt and Road Forum in Beijing, 36 countries were represented by either the head of state or the head of government, if I have my figures right. China's president, Xi Jinping, promised that all participants in the Belt and Road Initiative would benefit, not just China. And in the words of China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, all countries have the freedom to participate, but they don't have the right to prevent other countries from taking part. And I will stick my neck out and understand this comment in relation to the growing tensions between the United States and China over a wide range of issues concerning international order. How does China's model for economic and political cooperation differ from and challenge established international practices, norms, and standards? Will China perhaps reshape the international order through its Belt and Road Initiative? Today, I'm very happy to have three eminent up-and-coming scholars with me to explore these issues from a variety of perspectives. First, in the middle, we have Amanda Chini. She's a postdoctoral researcher in the political science department at Lund University. Amanda received her PhD from Cornell University in the United States. Her current book project examines how Tibet became part of the modern Chinese state, drawing on 15 months of extensive multilingual archival research. And her second major project explores the emergence of China's sovereignty claims in the South China Sea. Welcome to UV, Amanda. We're very happy to have you here. And uh, our second speaker is an old friend of the Institute, uh, Dr. Johanna Malm, 
She has researched China's presence in Africa since 2008, both as a researcher at Stellenbosch University in South Africa, but also at Roskilde University in Denmark. During her fieldwork in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Gabon, Cameroon, and Uganda, she has explored Chinese aid, loan, and investment, as well as the role of Chinese small-scale entrepreneurs in African countries. Her PhD thesis from 2016 explores how Chinese loans to Africa challenges the power of the International Monetary Fund at the continent. Welcome, Johanna. And our final speaker today is our own uh, Tim Rielig. Uh, he joined the Institute last year, and he's working now as a postdoctoral researcher on EU-China relations, as well as Chinese foreign policy. Tim holds a PhD from the University of Frankfurt. At UI, Tim is researching China's foreign economic policy and its implications for Europe in general, and also in particular, the role of technical standardization. And within this work, he has recently published a new UI brief called China's Standard Power and its Geopolitical Implications for Europe. I believe we have a few copies outside, otherwise you can download it for free on our website. And this topic about technical standardization, it might sound a bit dry, but don't be fooled. This is really something that is turning into an area of geopolitical conflict between China and the West. And this carries far-reaching implications, not least for the EU, in terms of security, economics, and global uh, technology norms. Without further ado, uh, I will now give the word to our three panelists. Uh, following their presentations, I hope we can engage in some discussion. Uh, before opening up the floor to all of you for uh, Q&A. So I would like to ask uh, Amanda to give the first presentation. And so there are three basic points that I'd like to make um, today. As uh, someone who focuses more on theoretical questions of the nature of international order and a student of Chinese and global international history. So the three points that I hope to uh, raise today are First, on the question of whether or not China will reshape international order through the Belt and Road Initiative. The short answer is yes, though not necessarily for the reasons commonly assumed. And critically, this does not imply that we need to necessarily fear or attempt to thwart the development of BRI. Second, outside observers need to take seriously the appeal of what the Belt and Road Initiative has to offer countries that have not benefited from the existing system. And third, um, given the complex mechanisms through which change in international order actually unfolds, other countries and members of the larger international community um, <clears throat> actually have a surprising amount of agency over how change in international order plays out in real time though they cannot necessarily control the final outcome. So on my first point, the question of whether or not China will reshape international order, as I said, the, the short answer is yes, but not necessarily for the reasons we commonly expect. So I say yes, um, but to give a little context, so at this point it's quite clear that the Chinese government is not seeking to displace the prevailing order with a singular, coherent, alternative model for organizing the international system. 
recent studies of official Chinese discourse show that the government not only goes to great lengths to emphasize BRI's adherence to existing global governance principles, but also the extent to which new China-led institutions are in practice quite nested within the current international legal order. Likewise, there's no evidence of a Chinese master plan to draw in economically vulnerable developing countries through debt traps as a way to increase China's political influence, or for that matter, a pattern of autocracy promotion. Rather than propagate an alternative universal model to replace liberalism, China advances a kind of pluralism which recognizes and tolerates differences and promotes the possibility of cooperating across differences in values, ideologies, and cultures in order to facilitate shared material gains. Even when the Chinese government talks about transplanting and replicating China's development experience, they're simply referring to China's experience of rapid economic growth and industrialization through infrastructure development Nowhere in any BRI documents can you find evidence that the Chinese government sees itself as presenting any kind of systematic alternative. And Beijing has gone to great lengths to make this point, issuing guidelines that the BRI should not be talked about as a strategy or project, program, or agenda, but rather an initiative that's open-ended. They've even changed the English language name of this initiative. Originally it was called One Belt, One Road. Now it's called the Belt Road Initiative. And part of the reason for that is to kind of dissuade the notion that there is kind of one singular plan here. Beijing has also banned the publication of Belt and Road Initiative maps. Again, trying to dissuade the notion that there's some kind of grand strategy here. And it's pretty much impossible to prove that this is merely a mask over some kind of ulterior agenda. Yet, this line of defense against BRI skepticism is besides the point because it's based on a false premise about the way that international order actually changes and what international order actually is. Through my research on the historical evolution of the international system, I've found that there's no essential thing where we can pin down what international order is. International order is a purely social construct. This does not mean that international order doesn't exist, but rather that it does not exist outside of the way that actors perform it. And more importantly for our question at hand, leading constructivist scholarship has shown that international order is processually reshaped through discourses and practices. This is very different from the sense that we get from more commonplace narratives about international change that draw on Thucydides' notion of you know, great power conflict and rise and fall of great powers. Instead, through a growing body of new literature on international order, we see that power transition theories based on Thucydides-type concepts cannot account for the actual mechanisms and processes by which international order changes because to claim that revisionist states intentionally overthrow international orders and kind of Herculean acts of statesmanship designed to remake the world in their own image 
is a fundamental misunderstanding of the character of international order as systemic social constructs that are the subject to ongoing long-term changes, not through order-building moments of kind of decisive end and beginning, post-war settlements, that kind of thing, but slow cumulative changes in discourse that happen through more everyday type practices. So although critical commentary argues that China is, again, not showing any kind of clear signs of promoting a coherent singular agenda or advocating for the spread of their authoritarian model. Nevertheless, through the broad-ranging economic, political, and cultural, cultural initiatives of the BRI, China will continue to influence the way that other governments and everyday people think and act. And it's through those mechanisms that international order is maintained and transformed. And I'll come back to this point um, in a couple of minutes. So my second um, intervention that we as outside observers need to take seriously the appeal of what China has to offer countries that have not benefited in the prevailing system. Nowadays, it's quite common in the West that we describe the current order as liberal, rules-based, but this is a pretty distorted and fundamentally self-serving way of characterizing this order. In reality, it's a club of the West. To other countries, its benefits, market access, aid, investment, security, were offered selectively and conditionally. And many countries in the developing world have either been outside of it or merely connected on the margins. This order has also operated more through coercion than consent. It's hardly been orderly for many developing countries where local conflicts were subject to the capricious intervention of great powers, including the United States and its Western allies. So we really need to take seriously that there are many countries with needs who have been neglected by the existing international order and Western development agencies. Likewise, we need to take seriously the appeal of China's alternative, not just to strongmen authoritarian leaders that are interested in appropriating China's notions of internet sovereignty and a surveillance state, but also to pe people living in the reality of being late developing nations who envy China's rates of poverty alleviation and have a genuine need for infrastructure development that the BRI makes seem attainable. It's important that we remember that according to World Bank statistics, China has lifted 800 million people out of poverty in just a few decades. Globally, most of the progress that's been made in going from 40% of the world living in extreme poverty to now less than 10%, most of that progress has happened in China. That said, if China pursues Belt and Road Initiative projects and the narrative of South-South cooperation without sensitivity to diverse local needs and fluid domestic political landscapes, this could mitigate its likelihood of success. However, it's important to really recognize the economic achievements that China's model has uh, made possible. 
So now on to my um, final point about the extent to which countries outside of China uh, actually have agency over how change in international order plays out in real time. So because international orders don't change through kind of this effort of just wholesale displacing a, an existing system with an alternative model, and China has no such model, this actually means that through the processual everyday uh, affirmation of the prevailing order in terms of discourses and practices or efforts to change it, there's an opportunity for outside actors to intervene in terms of shaping what those practices look like, shaping the meaning of the new concepts that China is introducing, whether it's you know community of shared destiny or win-win cooperation, that the larger international community can have a say in constituting the meanings of these important ideas that Xi Jinping uses in his discussion of the Belt and Road Initiative. And it's also important that we recognize that it's not simply the case that particular regions of the world or countries come under China's sphere of influence to increase China's overall power. There are also individual polities in their own right. And despite China's ambitions, its options are limited because the non-Western world is hardly one-minded. Likewise, when we think about some of the more recent developments um, in the past couple of weeks, thinking about pushback against um, narratives about China's use of debt, um, it's been pushback from Asian nations like Malaysia, not the West, that promoted China's kind of rethinking of questions of debt in the BRI. And I think that there's a possibility that the same may be the case when it comes to questions about more digital aspects of BRI as well. And to kind of wrap up in terms of where this leaves Europe, the United States, in terms of opportunities for their agency, they're bountiful. Um, in fact, the US and Europe can help potential recipient countries to negotiate better loan conditions, longer repayment periods, demand that lo local labor be included rather than purely importing Chinese labor, environmental protection concerns, in essence, helping weaker countries get the best possible deal for themselves and to be their own best advocates. And we see this case in point with the port in Myanmar that was recently scaled back from initial uh, budget proposals of 7.3 billion to just about 1.3 billion that the United States played a key role by sending technical advisors, lawyers, to review that contract and negotiate it down some 80%, saving Myanmar 8 billion US dollars. It didn't cost the US that much. It wasn't, you know, kind of head on disrupting the notion that China. Uh, has a place in, in shaping the infrastructure of Southeast Asia, um, but is based on acceptance of there, there being a, a possibility of successful Chinese pro projects that can actually benefit uh, the larger international community. Um, so with that, I think I have uh, come up to about my time limit and I'll, I'll hand it over. 
Thanks a lot, Amanda. Uh, that was a really uh, excellent, thought-provoking presentation. I will hold my questions for now and leave the floor to Johanna. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much, Amanda, for that. It is very interesting, um, theoretically and empirically, and I think sets the scene very nicely for what I wanted to say. I wanted to focus on one of the aspects that Amanda was touching on, namely the debt issue. Um, but first, because my work um, focuses on Africa, I just wanted to say a few words about the Belt and Road Initiative and what it means for Africa. Well, so far 37 um, African countries have signed up to it. It's a quite a recent development. Um, most of them signed up during the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation last year. Um, and it's only been... Um, Djibouti and Ethiopia and Kenya that are on the original maritime road that has been part of it for longer and had bigger railway projects as part, but have been branded Belt and Road projects. But we do not see any specific Belt and Road effect in Africa. If you look at the, any, all the statistics of trade, loans, even like the earnings of Chinese construction companies in Africa, they've grown significantly from I mean, this doesn't correlate. I mean, all the figures don't correlate. But from 2005-ish to 2013-ish, this is when you see a significant increase in all these different facets of the Chinese presence in Africa. After 2013, which is when the BRI was launched, we do not see any significant increase. It's not like there's been a decrease, but it's flattened growth um, in terms of loans and trade, etc. In this context, it's important to consider that actually China-Africa relations has developed earlier under the, the previous going global area, era under Hu Jintao presidency. And um, yeah, so this is when, the, so under those years that I cite there, 2005 to 2013, that we really see um, growth. So it's an earlier phenomenon. It's prior to the Belt and Road. Um, so I wanted to dive into debt trap narrative a bit more to talk about different approaches to development finance. So let's just start by looking at this narrative. Here it comes. So it goes something like this. China is a rapacious dragon that entraps poor countries with loans and takes over strategic assets when those poor countries cannot pay back their loans. That's where it goes. So let's debunk this a little bit. Um, so we have a couple of elements in this narrative. We have China. We have loans to poor countries, and we have takeover of strategic assets. So if we start by looking at the notion of China here, um, of course, as, as Amanda has already eloquently introduced, it's not a monolithic actor. Because this debt trap narrative, the way it's been circulating in international media, it kind of portrays China as, as a monolithic actor with a plan, right? But it's not. This is very commonplace in the literature on China and Chinese policy. I mean, Chinese politics and Chinese foreign policy making is that there are a lot of actors. So it goes to the theory of fragmented authoritarianism, is that it's fragmented. State-owned enterprises are actors here, government departments, and some of the state-owned enterprises are also previously um, government departments. There's provincial governments, there's provincial companies, there's policy banks, and they don't always agree on how to do things or they have different motives. Um, so it's, there's definitely not some kind of 
monolithic thing going on here. And as Amanda was saying, of course, the Belt and Road Initiative is a foreign policy vision. It's, it's not this detailed plan that you can come across if you read about the debt trap narrative. And I've been looking at different ways um, in terms of how Belt and Road has been understood. Here are my favorites. This is Deborah Breutigam, a China-Africa uh, scholar, the leading scholar on that. She says, well, she understands the Belt and Road Initiative as globalization with Xi Jinping characteristics. Our colleague, Joe Jiayi um, from Cipri, uh, will said, you know, it's like going global policy on steroids. It's really big, but it's the same, kind of same dynamics. And I also read um, a columnist from Kaijing, which is a Chinese financial magazine, who said, well, it's just a giant business plan. So if you go back to the narrative where there would be kind of a plan to entrap countries to give over their strategic assets, it doesn't really reflect in what these prominent thinkers um, are saying. It's more a plan. It's more about business. So the second element of this narrative is about loans to poor countries, right? We have to recognize, and this is what parts of my research has been about different approaches to debt sustainability. So the IMF, because um, we often talk kind of sloppily about the West, but really in terms of debt sustainability, it's the IMF that formulates these, um, these perspectives. And for the IMF, when they assess a country's ability to take on more debt, it's about country level assessment. So you look at how does this country look on a country level. And loans from well, the IMF, but also the World Bank and the African Development Bank that rely on the IMF for the debt sustainability assessments, they are repaid via the recipient countries or the borrowing countries' state budget. If you look at China and the Chinese way of conceiving the relation between debt and development and development finance, debt sustainability assessments can be made on actually on project level. And the focus is here on future reimbursement capacity. And this means that even countries that have a lot of debt can be seen as, well, debt can still be seen as sustainable. And it's interestingly, ahead of the Belt and Road Forum, just a couple of weeks back, the Chinese Ministry of Finance released a debt sustainability framework for the BRI. Well, it does formulate um, also the issues that I've seen in my research on, on Chinese loans to Africa. The perspectives that are put forward is that even highly or even countries in debt distress can take on new debt if they can manage their current and future debt uh, repayments, which is a completely different approach from the IMF because you focus on future reimbursement capacity. And this has to do with, with the Chinese view that, well, you need finance to develop. Even if you have a lot of debt, you might need more debt to get out of your previous um, debt problem. And the solution to this is to organize the repayment, not via the state budget, but via profit generating assets. So exports of copper or cocoa or oil. Well, these are the cases of Congo and Gabon and Angola. And even other revenues, such as the revenues from a port or an airport or incomes from an electricity company, this is the way that repayment is secured for countries that do not have strong reimbursement capacity. So these are different approaches. So the third element of the narrative is the takeover of strategic assets, which is the biggest boohoo part of this. Well, it comes from China's way of structuring loans. As I was saying, they organize, they collateralize the loans via different assets. So of course, 
in, in some kind of hypothetical scenario, you can think of it as taking over strategic assets, but it's not about that. It's about collateralizing in a way that the loans can be uh, manageable. And the ultimate purpose for China and Chinese banks in this is to avoid non-performing loans. So the aim isn't to have um, a lot of countries defaulting on their loans so that you can take over their strategic assets. The purpose is to get the money back. Because banks in China, they want to do good business. They have, of course, there's all these other foreign policy, you know, um, aims of, of extending loans, but ultimately they want the money to come back. So you organize it um, in, in, in ways to make sure that you get your money back. I'm convinced that Chinese bankers and Chinese banks have seen what happened to developing country debts in the 80s and the 90s. They were written off because they couldn't be repaid. I do not think they want to repeat that. I don't think they're trying to get anyone into a debt trap. What they're trying to do is to, to, do, to extend, um, to do good deals so that the, the money can actually come back. And then there's been this uh, example of the Hambantota port in Sri Lanka that's been circulating. Um, and it, that's the one case that's been circulating among thousands of Chinese loans. And even there is question marks. I have colleagues at Hong Kong University who just published a piece in um, the South China Morning Post saying that they have done research. They spoke to the previous and current governors of Sri Lanka who said, well, Sri Lanka never defaulted on a single loan. It wasn't like the Chinese company leased the port because uh, Sri Lanka couldn't pay their debt. They leased the loan so that Sri Lanka could use the incomes of the lease to pay off other loans, mainly to Western creditors. So there's a lot of ideas going around here. I haven't researched that case specifically. I'm just So I just put a a question mark to say, well, if Hambantota case is the only case, then I don't think we have a big problem of a debt trap. So what am I trying to say? This actually means, I'm not saying that debt sustainability is not an important issue. It's a very important issue. But what I'm also saying is exactly what Amanda was also saying, is that development finance is much needed in developing countries. And countries do not always so easily access the amounts that they need. And there is definitely a, need, a perceived um, lack, perceived and real lack um, of development finance in, um, in developing countries. So these two, they are true simultaneously. So my argument is that, you know, this issue is so important that we need to have a nuanced discussion around these different approaches to development finance because one can sometimes think, it seems, that the West has a good approach and China has a bad approach, whereas actually my argument is that these are two different approaches and they have different pros and cons and, and you know, they can have good and bad effects depending on how they are managed. But it needs to be recognized, you know, that these are um, different approaches. Uh, thanks, Johanna, for, for not a really great presentation. and. We move on to our final presentation of the day. Tim Rielig, please. Thank you very much for coming uh, this afternoon. Uh, usually, it is always the worst to be the last speaker, since you uh, are already tired from listening. But uh, the good part this afternoon is that you've heard two already very nuanced presentations that I can rest on. So I think I can skip a couple of points here. Um, usually, or maybe not usually, but very often I uh, have to demystify China first a little bit, but I think uh, both of the uh, previous presentations have done already quite a good job on this, so I can sort of skip that a little bit. What am I going to say? Um, well, I'll also make three points. Uh, the first is 
I will try to give you, and that uh, will be very brief now that you've heard already quite a bit about the BRI. So I will tell you a bit my take on the Belt and Road Initiative and what it's all about. Secondly, I will introduce to you what technical standards actually are and why they are so important. Um, that may indeed sound very dry and boring, but I hope uh, to give you some sense of why we really should care about this and why um, I think developments in China at this moment uh, provide us a very good uh, reminder actually of uh, what is uh, economically um, and beyond very important. And finally, I'll look on the role of technical standardizations in the Belt and Road Initiative. So very briefly, what is the Belt and Road Initiative all about? Uh, usually, I think, um, many just focus on uh, political goals, while I believe that the BRI is really about politics and economics at the same time. Um, and it is maybe more reactive or more defensive or more and more open um, than we tend to believe. It's really not a singular uh, strategy, grand strategy to reshape the world. It's really more um, uh, a policy initiative in progress that indeed leaves quite um, some leverage also for others or others to co-author sort of uh, the way forward. At first, you have to see, I think, that it's a response uh, very much to the, in political terms, to uh, Obama's pivot to Asia or the TPP, which essentially tried a free trade agreement, which essentially tried to exclude China and increase uh, the U.S. hold in the Asia-Pacific. So I think we have, in political terms, to see that it has been sort of a reactive uh, initiative. And ever since Trump has sort of retracted U.S. influence from Asia, it has also been a step in sort of filling the vacuum under Trump. So Trump has given China sort of uh, the opportunity to maybe make it into a more proactive policy initiative. But uh, initially, I think it was very reactive. And this is something I think we have to see in political terms. Um, also, what I call China-centered forms of governance that might be even going a bit a step too far. What I mean here is very much what the first what you have heard in the first presentation. I think uh, it is very much about uh, maybe increasing China's role uh, in international affairs, but really not about replacing as such the international uh, order. But as you've heard, uh, it is quite difficult for non-Western uh, countries to sort of raise their position in the existing international order. And therefore, I think China, the BRI is also one way forward to sort of increase alternative ways uh, to do international affairs uh, where it's not possible to do that in existing institutions. And then I come to the third political aspect that I'm going to talk about a bit more because um, here uh, technical standards actually play a huge role. This is what we uh, call in our project that it's a, mean to, it's, it's a means to gain what we call flow control. So control over essential uh, flows of data, of goods, of services. To be very clear, and again, to sort of demystify China here a little bit, this is a game that all major economic powers in this world play, China as well, and China has chosen, I think quite wisely, technical standards as one of the main means to uh, uh, in, to strengthen its own position in that game. And if you can see in 2015 already, uh, uh, the global container traffic uh, was uh, operated in ports to, to by more than 60% of that container traffic was operated in ports that were 
either invested by Chinese or even owned by, by, by Chinese uh, investors. So quite successful, I think, here in gaining flow control, at least in some sectors. Now, I think at least as important are the economic aspects uh, uh, of it. Um, and here, I think we have to very much look into the domestic affairs of China. You have to see, I mean, you've read that very often, I guess, that uh, the eastern coastal provinces are much further developed than the inland uh, uh, western provinces of China. Um, the Chinese inland provinces in the west do make progress, but there's still a huge gap in terms of development. And particularly if you look at not the maritime Silk Road, but if you look at uh, uh, the land corridors, for example, um, the economic corridor with Pakistan, you can see that uh, particularly develop, uh, that particularly Western landlocked provinces will profit from this. So it is also about integrating Western provinces into Asia regional trade and in terms of developing them further. Um, it is also an, an, a means to sort of try to deal with overcapacities and access uh, uh, industry that has been built up in wake of the global financial crisis. And if you, uh, and uh, I have read many often um, that uh, China's uh, attempt is here to, for example, export steel and cement overcapacities to other countries. Um, that might be indeed one part of it, but what is, I think, even more important that China has seen that there is less need for steel and cement. So what they actually do is also export uh, the factories, uh, the production ca uh, capacity, so they try to export that to Belt and Road countries. And again, this is also an experience that uh, uh, China has had itself. China has bought in the 80s many factories from Taiwan, from Japan, from Germany, and that has helped uh, uh, China itself to develop a lot of its own economy, and China has had this idea, well, if we have overcapacities, maybe we can export those facilities, those factories, to BRI countries. And as we have profited from this before, they may profit now. And finally, I think moving up the value chain and finding new export markets outside the West uh, is another very important issue. And that's then also very much, again, speaking to the role of technical standards here. Uh, and the background here is that uh, you have uh, probably seen that figure. Uh, uh, before that the uh, growth rates of, of uh, the Chinese economy are still, I mean, very high if you compare it to European standards, uh, obviously, but over the last uh, decade, a bit more than a decade, they have been constantly going down, and China has to go to undergo economic reform, um, and that is particularly because it's not as competitive on cheap labor costs anymore, so it has to essentially produce better quality products, that means going up the value chain, producing stuff that is uh, uh, worth, sort of say, more, but it's also more, more um, complicated to produce. So where do, all, where do technical standards play all into this? Before I come to that, let me briefly tell you what technical standards actually are. I think the simplest uh, example of a technical standard uh, is that we all have the same size of papers. Um, a4 papers fit into every printer, in every, into every copy machine. Um, but you can also go uh, take another, a bit more sophisticated example, maybe. Um, you all have different computers at home, I guess. Uh, and you have your laptops, but you want to have USB hard drives that fit into all of them, uh, 
nonetheless, whether you buy or uh, doesn't depend on whether you buy an Apple computer or, or uh, from a different producer. So we actually need some specifications that uh, industry agrees upon in our time of interconnectedness uh, that you can actually use uh, particular products uh, across the globe and across, uh, and across manufacturers. What we talk here about is interoperability. So products need to be interoperable. Now, A4 paper might be a very simple uh, example, and you may say, well, okay, we just agree on uh, the size of a paper and that's uh, all there is to it. But in many cases, actually, technical standards are uh, highly sophisticated technology and very often even patented technology. Now, the interesting part of this is now that the world has international uh, institutions for that, where agencies, private uh, companies, and their associations sit together and, and sort of their engineers discuss upon the best technical solution to solve those problems of interoperability. And once a patented, a patented technology is accepted as an international standard, uh, it cannot just be monopolized by this one manufacturer, but the world has agreed that this manufacturer needs to then also grant access to that technology to other uh, companies. But under particular conditions, we call them fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory uh, uh, specifications. So what we can actually see here is others have to pay licenses, licenses and uh, royalty fees. Um, we are talking here about enormous amounts of, of uh, money. For example, the Swedish company Ericsson is making around 20% of its revenue only with patented technology that are accepted as international technological standards. That gives you a rough understanding of how important it is in economic terms. By definition, technical standards are voluntary, voluntary on paper. So obviously, if you want to build up a factory that builds printers, you can construct those printers um, uh, in a way that they don't use A4 paper. You are free to do that. There's no law that prohibits you from doing it. But obviously, you have uh, a high incentive that your printer will also be able to handle A4 paper. And the reason um, here is technical standards are, by definition, by definition, neither laws nor regulations. Law sets, set limits, for example, but standards propose the methods, propose ways to sort of implement that and facilitate economic uh, cooperation. They are set in international standardization organization, which are transparent and inclusive, so any company can actually participate. It's quite costly. You have to participate in all those meetings. You have to bring uh, technical expertise to the table, so it's not an easy thing to do, but it's open and it's transparent, but it's completely privately driven. China, over the last few years, has massively increased its presence. It has sent more and more engineers to those meetings. Uh, China has also uh, come with more technical expertise here, particularly in crucial sectors, such as the new generation of mobile internet, which is uh, uh, mostly referred to as 5G. But China has also tried an alternative way, here again a little bit, because uh, not everyone in those standards organizations is uh, greeting uh, Chinese competitors uh, with uh, high hopes. But the BRI also uh, provides an alternative to internationalize 
Chinese standards out the, outside those institutions. So finally, what is China doing in terms of technical standardization in the Belt and Road Initiative? China has signed memorandums of understanding with a number of countries along the Belt and Road, um, and some of them include standardization clauses. So they uh, include, for example, clauses that say, well, we mutually recognize uh, technical standards that we have developed to facilitate the trade uh, and the interoper interoperability of products that we produce in China and in Belt and Road countries. China has also translated more than 500 standards into English and some also in Mongolian to also facilitate the internationalization of technical standards that have been adopted in China domestically. And finally, China has been conditioning some infrastructure investments along the Belt and Road Initiative. So they have said, so we are going to provide here financing for a specific project, but uh, we want you to accept then the domestic technical standards that Chinese engineers have developed. Now, how does all this fit into the overall picture that I've tried to uh, provide you in the first place? And I think there's two points here. One, how does it help China to move up the value chain and find new export markets? Well, very often by setting international technical standards, China tries to increase the quality of its own products. Uh, and this is a sort of introducing standards uh, is one means to sort of try to uh, move up the global value chain, produce higher quality products. Now, if you look uh, at uh, export markets, Western uh, countries are not always very uh, eager to buy Chinese products for whatever reason. Uh, we can discuss that if you like. Um, so China, China needs to develop uh, market access to third markets beyond the West for its more sophisticated products. And by internationalizing Chinese standards, not within international technical standardization organizations, but bilaterally in the Belt and Road Initiative, that provides competitive advantage to Chinese firms. Because if, for example, Pakistan uh, accepts a technical standard by China, uh, then it's not the case that, for example, European uh, manufacturers produce along the same lines uh, as uh, uh, the Chinese standard says, but Chinese manufacturers do. So if Pakistan says, well, for example, for this uh, project here in, in a railway sector, we will apply Chinese standards, and it will essentially be only Chinese companies who are able to provide technology that complies with those standards. And how is it contributing to flow control or to the increase in flow control? And that's my last slide. Um, First of all, um, by setting technical standards, you define also characteristics of the exchange, the flows of data, goods, uh, and particular also of ICT, including uh, communication. This will be a crucial step to uh, boost um, both the, the economic hold in those sectors, but it will also help, uh, for example, set ethical standards, set security standards. Secondly. Um, you create long-term dependencies of, uh, with third countries. And again, this is nothing special to China here. But if you, for example, build a railway uh, that, is, uh, that rests on Chinese technological standards and you want to build and, and you want to buy in 10 years a train, then obviously that train that runs on those tracks has to comply 
again with those technological standards. Otherwise, it won't be able to run on those tracks. So it is not an issue of, say, a year or two or building just a certain infrastructure project. It has long-term uh, implications and will help sort of shape the ways in which data, goods, and services flow through Asia and beyond. And finally, I've already indicated not all Western uh, actors are very happy to welcome China at the table. It's uh, essentially a new competitor. And that's also in part the case in international technical standardization organizations where China has massively increased, uh, uh, stepped up its efforts. So China keeps sort of the option on the table that it will invent an Asian standardization organization along the Belt and Road Initiative that it could open then also to non-Asian partners and build international institutions that look not that, not that different from the existing international technical standardization organizations, but with the stronger say uh, of China and Chinese actors. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tim, and thanks to all of you uh, once again. Um, let's start with this question. Uh, Amanda, in your presentation, you sort of question this common view of what an international order is and how international order change. An international order is not sort of all-encompassing, controlled by one actor, and then it's sort of uh, 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 replaced by another international order, uh, controlled by another actor. At the same time, however, you, you describe sort of the existing international order as still shaped and controlled to a significant extent by uh, the United States, uh, Europe, and other, and other Western countries. Um, and also recently, especially when we see the rhetoric from, from the government of the United States, there's a tendency to portray current international politics as a clash between two, two different orders, right? So, so it would be interesting to hear you reflect a little more on that, and also for Johanna and Tim, uh, from, from, from your perspectives. How, how, how do you see this tendency? Even if we sort of have a more nuanced understanding of international order, do, do you still see signs of, of sort of, you know, obviously this is very different from, from the kind of battle over international orders that we witnessed during the Cold War, but still, do you sort of see two alternative orders within your areas of expertise that sort of are fighting it out and, and maybe are not perfectly compatible? But if we start with uh, Amanda, and then I ask the two of you to chip in as well. Great. Thank you for a, a wonderful question, Bjorn. Um, so, yes, it's true that I, I, I um, on the one hand, am arguing that international order is not singularly controlled by one actor. However, the current system is influenced overwhelmingly by the United States and Europe. But the, the importance of drawing out the extent to which international order is not just kind of subject to the interests of, of one actor is important because if we as someone who has who focuses more on the emergence of the contemporary global system historically, that there's a, a common narrative of it being kind of just a European model scaled up. But when you kind of get into the, the nitty gritty details of how the kind of historical 
Western European model changed over time, it can't really explain how things like the standard of civilization no longer prevail within international order, how we come to associate sovereignty with territoriality. And those things are primarily the result of interventions made by non-European international lawyers in the early 20th century who helped ascribe new meanings to, to some of these concepts. Um, and so although uh, it, the current system has European Western origin, it's important to recognize the extent to which it's not singularly controlled. So we have to find a way to kind of hold those two thoughts in our, in our head at, at once. Um, then when it comes to this question of the narrative of clash that, I mean, actually, I think this, this speaks quite well to the points that I tried to raise in my talk, which is that the, the ways that we talk about international order matter a lot. So if the United States government continues to talk about its encounter with China in terms of a clash, especially a clash of civilizations, that is likely to drive conflict because narrative and discourse is important to the way that actors actually exist in the world. So this actually, I think, really is important to draw out here in terms of the way that kind of none of these developments are predetermined but are kind of processually shaped by the way that actors engage with things in, in real time. So I think it's quite important for um, other voices within the United States government besides just, you know, the Trump administration to, to push back on this notion of clash of civilizations, European actors, other, uh, even Chinese uh, voices to, to push back against this narrative uh, because it is actually something that could dramatically alter the kind of current trajectory that we're on. Mm. Johanna? Yeah, this is so interesting. I think in my research, I was looking at this matter of debt sustainability frameworks and how China has challenged uh, the IMF's debt sustainability framework. And the interesting part, and, and I like the reference to like processual change, and the gradual kind of process is that the IMF's debt sustainability framework, the way that it was formulated, say in the early, well, prior to 2013, it was such that, you know, highly, heavily indebted, indebted countries or countries with low economic growth could only take on concessional loans. This means load on aid, loans on aid terms that were cheap with low interest rates and long reimbursement periods. Along came the big Chinese loans to countries like Ghana, Congo, and Angola. And I studied the one big loan to Congo. And it challenged the IMF's norm. Um, and this was important for Congo at the time um, because Congo was due to get debt relief. And to do that, you must comply with the IMF's norms. Otherwise, the other donors that would do to forgive their loans would get irritated. Frankly, that was the case. So what happened eventually was that the IMF changed the way they approached these Chinese loans. So they calculated it in a way to make it look concessional. That's what I show in my dissertation. But what also happened, I mean, that, that was one instance of a, of a compromise on the, size, on the side of the IMF. But more importantly, they revised the debt sustainability framework to say, well, these countries that do not, are not able to carry a lot of debt, um, 
they can if there are extent to like accelerated infrastructure needs or something like that um, accept uh, loans on commercial terms, which in essence I would argue is a formula, is, is a wording to be able to let Chinese loans through to the extent that they materialize. So that's definitely not a clash because it wasn't allowed a clash. There's never any loud clash with the IMF. They will always like have a way with words to say that we are still the experts here. We're doing this. This is our judgment, but but actually this is really. Um, just an adjustment they had to make because of China. But the interesting part is these kinds of challenges from China through big loans do not always materialize. Actually, very little these days. These big loans from China do not really come through to the extent that they used to because, as I was saying, Chinese banks want their money back. They have realized that this can be problematic in African countries. So the clash mm -hmm. will only materialize to the extent that, you know, th this is profitable for, for Chinese banks to extend these loans. So it's not like there's a permanent crash clash going on. It's, it's a process whereby, you know, for many of African countries, it's still the World Bank and the African Development Banks that will come through with loans. Mm -hmm. well, Chinese loans aren't, like, always there or always challenged so yeah that's so if, if I can just follow up there before we uh, move to Tim because at the Belt and Road uh, Forum the Ministry of Finance of China they published a debt sustainability framework and of course IMF and, and other other organizations have uh, called uh, for uh, sustainability as something that they, uh, where where there's room for improvement on on the Chinese side and, and uh, the IME, uh, IMF chief uh, Lagarde, she, she responded to this, that it was a welcome step, but also sort of noted that more sustainability is needed. So how, how do you understand this step from the Chinese side? Is this sort of accepting more and sort of try to accommodate some of the demands that we are seeing from IMF? Or, or are the Chinese still keeping to their own model, so to speak, here? I think that document's fascinating, actually. As a, as a debt nerd, I was just completely thrilled to read it. It's, in a, it's written in, in proper IMF language. It's really like it has all the calculations, all the models, all the everything, but it also has the wording that I quoted earlier, that countries in debt distress can still, uh, have, this can still be sustainable. So, I mean, they're hanging on to it, and I think this is a way to signal from China's side, like, look, guys, we understand the seriousness of this. Um, we're, we're doing it, but we're also not going to completely buy whatever you say. And, and I think the interesting part of my research and the stuff that you find when you study the IMF is that it's not all about we, IMF has a model that it sticks to. This is also about politics. Mm -hmm. It's about the IMF wanting to be experts. It's about the IMF wanting to set standards and actually having that expert role. They budged. In the case of the IMF, they let through a loan that was seriously commercial. They called it concessional to get push through debt relief and be able to, you know, keep keep their own sway in terms of setting standards. So this is about politics. It's also not about we have a model that we want to, you know, defend at all costs. No, it's about it's a it's about politics. Right. It's about power. Yeah, ish. <laughs> Tim. Yeah, tech sentence is also about power. I think. Uh, so it's the perfect fit to uh, where your conversation has just ended. I don't think, I wouldn't say it is necessarily a clash of systems uh, as we can see it in the, during the Cold War, even though I'm tempted to give you one example uh, in, in just a minute um, that may indicate that there might be something like a clash of systems inherent in some parts. But I think it's specifically sector specific then. 
Um, overall, I think what we can see here is a change of perception of techno technological uh, standards. And that is essentially that we have seen it as a very common approach, uh, a joint approach by the international community to find the best technical solution for common problems. That has been the perspective. But that has been true or not. I mean, there has been always a struggle between different manufacturers who held different patents, but it was always perceived at best uh, to be a struggle between different companies over revenue, and that's it without a specifically political implication. And I think not, what we now see is that both the United States as well as China see that as a battleground, see it through the lenses of a geopolitical battleground. They, they think, and it's not completely false, that they can have enormous economic leverage if they uh, increase their hold in technical standards. It's a very reasonable argument, uh, but it's not uh, uh, the way we have perceived technical standards. But I wouldn't say this is now a clash of systems here. The United States and China have a quite similar perspective. And the question for us Europeans is really, where do we position ourselves? How much can we sort of retract and still keep to this, uh, I would say, idealized picture of technical standards that it's only about finding a good solution for everyone? Or how much do we sort of need to step into this political game? At the same time, just to give you a reason why we might not want to go into that, I think Europe has always been extremely strong in the field of technical standardization setting. And part of that was also because of the rather depoliticized nature of it. Uh, Europe has presented itself always very much in terms of technological argument, having spoken with one voice, first consulting within Europe, and then speaking with, with one voice in international institutions to push for their uh, what they thought or what we think is the, the best technical solution to it. And now we ha have to sort of reconsider, do we want to give up some sort of this credibility by also politicizing our own stance, or do we say, well, we can't just retract from that political game because political interests are behind that. We don't have the time to explain you how the states actually can, can help also the private actors to uh, increase their sense, but believe me, they can. Um, so I wouldn't say it's, it's, a, it's a struggle, of a clash of different systems, but it's a power struggle here. To give you just one example, very briefly, and this is 5G because it's so crucial. 5G will run so much of our future economies um, and beyond, I think. Um, and I think there's sort of, again, you can really see there's two ways to approach the issue, and you could see it also in the debate over the Chinese tech giant Huawei that we had in the last few months. Uh, the US has very much said, well, that's a matter of national security and we need to ban Huawei from the rollout of the 5G infrastructure in the US and in the West among our allies. Otherwise, we can't share with you intelligence information, for example, so they have threatened uh, Europe as well to, to uh, scale down intelligence cooperation. Well, many Europeans have said, well, that's an issue, that's a purely technological issue. We need, we, it's indeed uh, uh, right that we need to talk about how to secure our uh, network infrastructure in Europe, but that's a matter of technology. It's not a matter whether a, a company comes from an authoritarian or a democratic regime. 
while the 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 American approach really seems to say, well, how can you trust a, a, a company that is coming essentially from China, an authoritarian regime with a non-functioning rule of law regime, so they are sort of exposed uh, to uh, the authoritarian rulers in Beijing, uh, you have to retract from that. So there's two really two narratives here. And I mean, what is a fact here is, from we know from the Snowden um, uh, uh, reports that uh, Cisco, an American supplier of ICT technology, has actually had backdoors in its equipment. Have you heard a big debate in Europe about uh, whether we should ban Cisco? No. Have we found a smoking gun in Huawei equipment? No, but yet we discussed the possibility that there might be uh, a backdoor, might be backdoors in it. Am I saying that Huawei equipment is safe? No, I'm not saying that. All what, I'm, what I want to stress here is we Europeans trust technology from the US much more than we do uh, uh, with uh, Chinese technology. Um, for good reason or not, I think that's a political issue to decide. Are we concerned about network security as such? Are we talking about technology? Or do we say, well, we have a larger, we have an issue with sharing, potentially sharing information with an authoritarian government? Um, I think I leave that, I think, also to you to decide for yourself whether you're comfortable, uh, more comfortable with the US having your data or uh, whether you uh, find there's no difference. Um. Thank you. We have a big audience today. I'm sure there's a lot of questions out there. So let's open up the floor uh, to questions and answers. And we have microphones here. And when you get the microphone, if you want, you can introduce yourself. And then please ask a question to all speakers or uh, one or two of them. Uh, and also, since we have so many people here today, please keep it short. So a lot of people will have the chance to participate in the discussion. Uh, the gentleman on the fr on the front row. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm Chen Xiliang from the Chinese Embassy. First of all, I welcome the growing interest from the Swedish society on the BRI as showing the seminar. And uh, I would say BRI is now five years old, more than five years old, and uh, uh, it has not entered into a new stage of development. Uh, it is con it continues to move towards a development of high quality, high quality de de development, and in the recently concluded the second international forum on BI in Beijing. The joint communique emphasized the importance to, uh, to continue to develop the BI, and the keywords are clean, uh, sustainable development, and also openness and uh, multilateralism. And it, it, is also, uh, it also emphasized the importance to make sure that every project is commercially and fiscally uh, sustainable and also, uh, and also uh, the adoption of internationally uh, accepted norms and standards, so think, things like that. And uh, the, the speakers also mentioned the debt issue and also the geopolitical, uh, the, 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 the geopolitical implications. And I would say that uh, BI, at the very first place, is a initiative for international economic cooperation and a infrastructure connectivity partnership. And uh, the debt issue, I would say it is... M a Mr. Chun, could you please move on to your yes, question? Yes, yes, uh, Please let me finish. Uh, uh, and it is, a, it is important for us to 
I like to remember that to the debt issue, actually it is a, it is a non-issue. If you, uh, I think a recent report by the John Hopkins University said that uh, Western countries are still the main creditors of most of, of many uh, developing countries. And if we really want to know the real situation of uh, the debt situation of a country, perhaps we can invite the ambassador of the country to speak here. And uh, finally, yes, I have a question or perhaps a suggestion for our host today. And next time, I would suggest if the Foreign Policy Institute organized such a forum on China and uh, BI, perhaps uh, we could uh, invite a guest from the uh, a guest from China to join the panel and uh, to share our views, uh, because uh, I believe this will contribute and serve better the values of this institute which is uh, openness, integrity, uh, and relevance. So thank you very much. Thank you uh, very much. And I can mention that, that we very much uh, welcome this suggestion. And we would love to have a Chinese scholar on panels. And we have Chinese scholars now and then. Sometimes we invite them. They can't come for various reasons uh, due to visa issues and uh, busy schedules and so on. But I'm sure we have a lot of opportunities to, to discuss that uh, later. Uh, we take a few more questions before we uh, leave the word to the uh, panelists. We have uh, a question up here from our colleague. Uh, thank you. My name is uh, Viking and I work here, here at the Institute. I wanted to pick up on a question uh, or on the issue of the debt trap, which uh, Johanna talked about, and uh, uh, the issue of Chinese motives in the Hambantota case. So this resulted as uh, came as a result of the way that China collateralizes its loans, from the way I understand. Um, and uh, in the end, it was able to secure a geostrategically um, important uh, port as a result. In this case, does it matter what the motives were, in the sense that they come from fragmented authoritarianism or a greater vision? Or should we at least recognize that China took a geostrategically important step forward here. Um, should, we, should we look at the implications more or are the motives uh, key here? Right, uh, I have a number of names on the list and I noticed the two gentlemen to the left and you will have the chance to ask your questions later. But first we have a gentleman here on the third row and then we'll give it to the speakers and then we have time for probably another couple of rounds of questions. Svensson is my name. It's a short question to Tim. Which is the best 5G technology for Europe today and the future? Huawei or Cisco? And shouldn't we take the best? That was an excellent question. I, I, I heartily approve of that kind of questions. Uh, please, should we start here with Johanna and then Amanda and Tim? Yeah, um, thank you for that question about Hambantot. I port in Sri Lanka. I just wanted to start by saying that, so Ambantota is one of, as I was saying, one of the examples of among thousands of Chinese loans that is spoken about as something that China seized. Um, but then I read, as I said, my uh, colleagues who wrote, um, colleagues that I know are, you know, do solid empirical research who argue that this is, wasn't even the case. They didn't even default on the loan. Um, and this was, um, 
they lease the Chinese company leased the loan, leased the port, but the revenues are used to pay off other more expensive loans, mainly to Western creditors. So I think in terms of whether it's China's or anyone's motives or the implications that matter, I would say the implications matter because the motives don't shine through. It's the implications that anyone can feel. So that would be my take. But I think in Ambantota case, we have, because these myths, we've seen them throughout, you know, these past two decades of China-Africa relations, they tend to get their own life. And I, I actually would have put a, that's why I put a question mark to that whole story in my presentation, because we might as well just find out that there was no loan that they defaulted on. There was no seizure. There was actually just nothing. I do not know, but I, but I would be hesitant to use it as a case, but particularly since we have seen no other instances of it. So, and, and I, mean, I guess the implications will also depend on what actually happened there. So just uh, picking up on um, this question of uh, China's motives with Hanban Toda. So I think this, this raises a, a very important point about the differences between intentions versus outcome. And I think that there's been such a focus on reading this case in terms of a, a Chinese plan for you know, the string of pearl strategy, which is just a complete red herring. And instead, we are not really grappling with, well, but what if that wasn't the intention, yet we still have a potentially problematic outcome? And likewise, I think it's somewhat troubling that this, you know, as um, Johanna mentioned, that this is kind of one, one case uh, of uh, China potentially seizing uh, an asset, which, I mean, you're, you, you've raised that we don't even necessarily know about the question of default versus not. Um, yet, it's kind of used as, like, the exemplary case. And that's always kind of the, the default that we go to in terms of, well, is China, you know, pursuing this geostrategy of, of debt trap diplomacy? We Here we can look at the case of Hanban Toda, yet it's it's actually a bit of an anomaly. And so I think that, um, that that's another important element to kind of push, push back against in the discourse surrounding that issue. Yeah, one question directed to me. Well, I'm not an engineer, so, uh, but I'll still try to do my very best to answer that question. Um, well, from all I understand, I think it's fair to say, uh, as a very general comment, that in terms of technological capacity, Huawei is around ahead two to three years of uh, other international manufacturers of 5G technology. So if we, if best technology, if you ask what is the best 5G technology, if we just speak in terms of performance, for example, then I guess we uh, would rely on Huawei technology, which speaks to uh, uh, what the representative of the Chinese embassy has said, that yes, indeed, I mean, uh, China is producing high quality in, in particularly crucial economic sectors, and the BRI is also uh, uh, becoming more and more an initiative of a country that is uh, producing high tech uh, uh, of uh, extremely good quality. China is not just competing on price anymore, but on quality. But, um, I mean, I don't want to go into the details of 5G technology. There's different components. Uh, very simplified, there's uh, a core network and there's radio, ac there's a, uh, a radio access network component of it. Uh, 
in radio access network we have essentially depends on how you count four to five vendors only none of them is US American are uh, um, Nokia and Ericsson are the two European players there's Huawei there is some count ZTE in some not that's a Chinese state-owned enterprise and there's Samsung that's it uh, these are the five vendors who produce uh, ARN technology and the whole discussion we had was not on the core network but on ARN technology here in Europe in the last few months. Um, but what is crucial here I think is we could still ask not Cisco in, in that particular case not Cisco versus Huawei but we could still ask should we rely on Ericsson and Nokia uh, uh, exclusively here in Europe and I think the response to that is probably in order to keep us the least vulnerable to keep, to have infrastructure in place. The fact is all 5G technology has some weaknesses. It does not need to have backdoors. It's just there are weaknesses and it's constantly updated. But if just one update comes maybe a day late, there might be something, uh, there might be security uh, issues with that technology. So we have security issues on all technologies from all vendors. So I think the advice that I would give is diversify. Don't exclude a, a particular vendor, but diversify. Don't rely just on the technology of one company. Try to build redundancies. So if, for example, Huawei technology is not available for whatever reason, that you can still sort of in every place here in Stockholm, for example, rely on Ericsson uh, technology. While if uh, Ericsson technology defaults, you still have Huawei or Nokia uh, uh, equipment in place. Thank you. Then we have two uh, questions uh, there. And we have a number of more uh, arms on the list. Sorry, I have to write you here. I have been looking at the audience, but you were captivated by the speaker. So, uh, right. Uh, right. Okay. Okay. So we, we have actually a number of more questions. So I really ask you, keep it short, and then we have time for everyone that I noted down so far. Please. Uh, my name is Kjell Lundqvist. I'm from the European Labour Party. Uh, First, I wanted to comment this uh, about the 5G net and so on. Questions, please. Yeah. And please keep it to one very question. Very short comment, yeah, just. We know that the five eyes are now they listening on everything that is happening in, in the net. That's the reason why they don't want to go away in the net, because then the five eyes maybe is not able to listen anymore. Uh, then to my question. If what you say is correct about China's policy, why is everyone so angry at China? Uh, that is very, very strange. Uh, they just want to build up the world as uh, uh, they say, win-win uh, uh, or future for mankind, shared future for mankind. That's also a good short question. Why are people mad at China? What's the fuss about? And then the gentleman on the third row. Uh, my name is Ulf Sandmark. I'm from the BRICS Belt and Road Initiative Executive Group. And uh, I just wrote an article in realtid.se, so you can have a look on that. But my question is to Tim Rulig uh, about standardization. Uh, I think you, you are agree with, with the proposition that the, the way to compete in standardization is to be in the forefront of development of technology. If you are in the first in the technology, you are getting the technology. So the question is, how will, uh, how do you see 
the possibility for the Western world and Sweden to keep up the high technology to be able to fight about the standards if we have a culture with promoting uh, mellow, promoting in the United States the big drug epidemic and, and just uh, war games uh, on, on the computers when the Chinese are developing 10 uh, uh, scientific uh, priorities to be first in the, in the technology. So, so that's the, the first question. This, uh, I yeah. think we keep it to one. That's a good question, how to keep up sort of in this technological race with China. And I can mention that the computer war games are popular in China as well. <laughs> Maybe even more so than here. It's a good question. Thank you. Then we have the lady up there. Oh, thank you. My name is uh, Catherine Elgin. I'm uh, from Princeton University in the U.S. I wanted to ask about contextualizing Belt and Road within the framework of the international order, since we've exclusively focused basically on BRI. I wondered if you could place BRI within the broader context of both Chinese and American actions, including military, um, South China Seas, energy deals, alliances, the China-Russian relationship, and kind of give us a bigger picture here that um, sort of broaden us out. Yeah. Thanks. We have three more names. So I think we actually take them now as well, and then I give the, the floor to the panelists to, to finish it off. And it was uh, the gentleman there and uh, the lady uh, there and the gentleman uh, there. Can I start? Thank Please you. go ahead. Okay, so my name is Charlotte Jarmark. I work with the international NGO WF, and um, I work a lot in China. We work on transformation of industry. So uh, in this case, I'm very interested, even being a biology, of the green, putting this green question forward on the economic models and the competition between those economic models. It seems to me that the BRI is using the most liberal economic model that Dr. Malm and Dr. Chini um, presented. And um, it's kind of ironic uh, that to me, IMF seems to be the more planned economic, economic model, uh, providing long-term conserving debt models. Um, so that's what I touched from your presentation. It would be interesting to hear your comment. Thank you. Thank you. And then we have these two gentlemen. Hello, my name is Stefan Kvensel, a retired standardization man. But my question is to Amanda. You mentioned a very provocative uh, narrative of China, but how does the narrative sound in China itself about the BRI project? What is the Chinese narrative? Thank you. And then we have the last question. Thank you for a great presentation. Uh, my name is Ray and I'm writing a thesis about this. Uh, and my question is, um, you haven't mentioned anything about the credit system or the surveillance, surveillance system that um, the recent documents have uh, been exposed in China. So um, shortly, what are your view and points on the surveillance system and the credit system in China? Thank you. And these are very good questions. And of course, it's uh, pretty broad taking together, so maybe we won't have time to fully go into all of them, but I give all of the speakers two minutes each. I'm sure the speakers have time to stay around after the seminar, so if any of you didn't get your questions fully answered, to please hang around and there'll be some talk to, to discuss it, uh, time to discuss it later. But we can start with Johanna again. Okay, I'll pick up on two questions. Why is everyone so angry at China? I think there's a fair amount of otherization going on here, because we do not... Uh, 
I mean, we uh, in Europe, we speak most of us English. We understand America. Most of us do not speak Chinese. Most of us do not actually understand China. So I think that's why these kinds of things can grow the ideas of what, what China is or what China wants. I think that's something at play. I'm not saying there's not issues to be addressed, just as I'm saying there's not issues, I mean, in terms of US foreign policy that need to be addressed. What I'm trying to do is just demystify and say, let's deal with what we have to deal with, but let's not get caught up in something that actually just is just myths or fears. Um, in terms of the IMF, it's not, I would say, it's not a planned economic model. The difference between China and the IMF basically is about the role of the state. Um, let's not forget that the IMF and the World Bank has, um, in the, during the structural adjustment years, required African states to roll, African governments to roll back the role of the state. So it, it scaled back massively, you know, on, 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 on state capacity, which means that their states have a lot less ability today to develop, to do uh, industrial policy. Do these things matter? That's the, that's the view of the IMF, whereas for China, obviously, it's a developmental state doesn't think that a big, um, uh, a strong state is, is bad. So I would say there's that, it's one of the dividing lines there is on the role of the state. Um, so picking up on a, a couple of questions about um, what, is, what is China's narrative and, and contextualizing this within the larger context of uh, US PRC relations. Um, so when it comes to what, what narratives are within China, I mean, there's not necessarily one singular narrative, right? There, there are a diversity of viewpoints on exactly what the BRI is, what its goals are, but it's important to differentiate kind of popular social narratives between what the actual government, Beijing's perspective is on its intentions for BRI, right? Um, and I think this, this kind of bleeds into the question of the, the larger context about you know, how BRI fits in with US-China relations and South China Sea and all of that. And I mean, I think what we have, have uh, what uh, comparative politics scholars have found in terms of where BRI is coming from, that it's coming more from domestic concerns and this, this um, issue of uh, over overcapacity within China's own economy that needs to kind of spatially uh, deal with the problem of overcapacity, so moving into uh, other markets. So it's not necessarily so much about this, this kind of grand intentionality to upset the United States. Um, and then finally, about the uh, question of why, why is everyone so angry about China if, if what we ha all have said here is correct. And so I, I think just echoing what Johanna said that China is different than the West, right? And China defies a lot of Western expectations about the notion that economic development ought to lead to political liberalization, that it has not, is very puzzling for the West because that is at odds with many of our own self-understandings and narratives. And this then kind of links up into the question of kind of where we situate the issue of the social credit system and surveillance, uh, that those are elements within uh, China's domestic political context that we don't know how to reconcile with our understandings of what a technological innovator 
you know, ought to be doing, that authoritarian regimes should not be, you know, leading technological innovation. Um, but we don't necessarily have a good enough grounding in terms of what the actual state of the social credit system is. I think if you ask an ordinary Chinese person, they don't necessarily know what, what you're talking about. Most of it is actually run by um, commercial companies. It's not like a, a singular state enterprise that you could have some benefit of not having to put a deposit down in a hotel. It's not about you know bringing some kind of extra set of uh, repressive mechanisms in, in place. Um, and likewise, when it comes to uh, surveillance as well, that within Chinese society there is a problem of public trust from the particular history of China in the mid-20th century that is a legitimate issue for Chinese society that I think is very difficult for those of us outside of it to understand. So there's just a lot of, a lot of dissonance here. And, and I hope that you know, our conversation here has gone some ways towards remedying some of that dissonance. Thank you, Amanda. Indeed, I agree. Tim, last one and a half minute. Yeah. Okay. Very briefly, um, two, three points. One, uh, your comment on espionage. Um, the world is complex, uh, whether I agree or not, what the five eyes are doing or not. I think we should recognize that most espionage is not done through 5G or 4G infrastructure. If we want to, if you want to also individually, if you want to protect your conversations, your data exchange, look at encryption, and you will be hated by intelligence services around the world, not just Chinese, also US American, also all European intelligence services. But then look on encryption and not 5G infrastructure. Um, second, um, the comment uh, from this site, uh, well, I don't know uh, about the hours play, uh, that people play video games in Europe or in China, but well, indeed, first mover advantage, stay ahead of technological uh, uh, developments is key. Uh, how to do it? I think, yes, we can turn to China to some extent. We can look at Shenzhen, which is now the high-tech hub in south of China, rivaling uh, with the Silicon Valley that has rapidly uh, evolved. I'm not saying uh, we should replicate what is happening in Shenzhen, Turning our eyes there, uh, identifying the causes of their success, I think, can uh, indeed uh, uh, only be to the benefit of uh, Europe. Um, that leads me to the question of the most liberal model being the BRI. Not so sure about it. Uh, look at who is actually gaining um, uh, the infrastructure projects to be done, who are the ones carrying them, them out high percentage of Chinese firms here is that open liberal competition, um, not so sure, and also look at the role of state and enterprises in all this. That leads me back also to Shenzhen. That might be something that we count more on private uh, actors than on, on uh, state, um, state firms or private firms that are closely allied uh, with the state. And final and, and last point, surveillance social credit system. Good question. The, here, the issue is really how much do we sort of want to mix domestic with foreign uh, activities. I mean, uh, there, there are people who are making the claim we shouldn't trust a, com a company like Huawei because Huawei does uh, cooperate 
with the Chinese Ministry of uh, uh, National Security in uh, a province like Xinjiang, where we have surveillance. Um, the question, I mean, you can make a good claim and say we want to boycott such a company. The question is, are we really getting any further in a world where we just have five vendors who can provide us with uh, a radio access network in 5G? You hear a bit my skepticism. I mean, it's uh, a morally valid point whether it's really feasible and, and possible to do so. I'm, I'm unfortunately a little bit skeptic. So I think it's a very important issue. What do we do with this uh, technology? But maybe we, we are living in a world where we sometimes have to sort out domestic from foreign affairs. Thank you, Tim. And thank you, everyone here who joined us today for this conversation. I hope to see you soon again. As I said, feel free to hang around. However, if you want to get home in time for dinner, I would like to notify you that the premises close at 5 o'clock. Please remember that. And let's <laughs> join me in giving our speakers a big hand. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews.